0: Playing Eon's and Legacy either. <laughs> this is Hassan Lopez. Hello, and I am not playing Magic Realm.
1: And this is Mike Pullman, and I am not playing Food Chain Magnet, although I kind of want to.
2: Uh, did you have that expansion for it yet?
1: Uh, it's not out yet, but soon. Ah, okay.
2: Well, that, that that game has scared me. I love the look of it, but uh, I've been sort of scared by the. It's like a pretty in-depth game, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, near the high limit of uh, weight ratings on BGG.
2: Ah, okay. Well, that's that shouldn't scare me, but it does.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, uh,
2: before we start, because uh, I, I missed you guys last week, let's do some quick catch-up. Let's each talk uh, sort of miniature discussion of a game we've been playing before we get to our main events. Uh, and the first one I want to hear about, Hassan, you've been playing this game that I've seen. I lo- I, I know you and I both love the post-apocalypse thing because of the Fallout game, uh, this seems like just standard pickup and deliver. Am I correct about Wasteland Express delivery service?
0: Um I think you are, yeah. So I've I've been playing Wasteland Express lately. It's another Pandasaurus game sort of riffing off our last discussion of Dinosaur Island. And it does have a a really kind of extreme but fun and um enjoyable post-apocalyptic theme to it. And the component quality is really excellent. Pandasaurus is really doing a great job with their products nowadays. The the tiles all are great. It comes with a really nice uh, sort of, I forget what they're called, these plastic trays that hold all of your components. And you could just sort of unpack it and get it set up uh, quickly. But the general mechanic of it is, yep, you're, you're running a, an express delivery service after the apocalypse and you're buying goods in one location, turning them for a profit in another, and using that money to upgrade your vehicle, make it. More badass, so you can take out raiders, maybe um, fulfill the quests a little bit faster, and it's uh, much like Dinosaur Island. It has a mission structure to it where you're trying, you're racing to try to complete three objectives before anybody else.
2: And does it really feel post-apocalyptic, or is it just a reskinning of Merchants and Marauders? <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, it depends. I, I, that, I think the answer to that really depends on. The player and whether you whether you are attracted to the theme or not I I like the theme and, the, and I think the people I've played it with have enjoyed the theme and so I do feel slightly immersed in the world and I think the designers have made every attempt they can to, you know, uh, Im- fill the game with with thematic elements that make you feel like that's where you're at. Uh, well, so here's I think the, I, okay. Yeah, go ahead. Well, here's the question then. What are you how apocalyptic is it? What are you
2: picking up and delivering?
0: Right. Yeah, you're delivering food, water, and and guns and ammo, basically. Okay. Those, those seem yeah.
2: apocalyptic enough. Fair enough.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, And, and I, I don't have a ton to say about it, except that I think I was pleasantly surprised by it. I think it's a game that I was hesitant about. I, I was drawn to it because of the theme, and the production looked excellent. And I do quite like the designers who are behind it. Um, and so I was like, okay, I want to I want to give this a try, but I'm a little worried that it's going to be an overly simplistic pick up and deliver game, and that basic mechanism usually isn't enough to get me into a game strategically. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, it's it it is, I, you know. When I was describing it to a friend, I called it like a, a really good beer and pretzel game, like in the sense that it's not super thinky. The turns go by really really fast. It's a game where. You can just sit back and have a couple drinks with your friends and really enjoy what you're doing, and the time passes by very pleasantly. Um, I don't know if this will make sense to people, but I, as a point of contrast, there are games I play that are just so intensely um, thinky that everyone's just staring at the table and not talking to each <laughs> other. Um I would I would put 5 Tribes in that category which is a game I quite like but it's just it just crashes a game night because everyone's so damn quiet, right? And I think Wasteland Express is just the the flavor of it and how quick and breezy it is makes it a really a pleasant evening, I okay. think. Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah, and I I've, I've actually played that too and I quite like it. Uh, one of the coolest mechanics is the economy changes, so as you're buying or selling, the price of say water might go up or down depending on demand. Just kind of a cool little thing they uh, they added on.
2: I, I like that a lot in Pick Up and Deliver because that, that adds a lot more – that adds an element of interactivity, which I think can be mes- missing when it's just a race game for who can make the most money the most quickly. Uh, that that sounds very cool. Mike, Mike, you did better selling me on it than Hassan did. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I I will say our our biggest criticism of the game afterwards is that it it does not feel like there's much interaction between the players. Like everyone said that, oh, it just felt like I was doing my thing and you were doing your thing and we rarely interacted with each other. There is a variant in the rules where you can uh, you can have rules where you can attack each other, but it's not super well developed. It feels pretty tacked Mm. on. It's not it's not really worth your time to do that anyways. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And you can you get to move these uh raider trucks around, which lets you kind of. If I remember, it's been a while since I played, but I think you can move them in the direction of other players. Is that right, right. son?
0: That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and and it doesn't come into the game very often, unfortunately. Like you can, you can try to throw a raider truck in in somebody else's way, but almost always they're just going to be like, okay, well I'll attack it. And and the the combat <laughs> in the game is not very punishing. Um, I, th- I think a lot of people would argue that it's maybe too easy for the theme, right? But um, it's also a game, and I don't know how you guys feel about this. It's a game that does lend itself to house rules very easily. I mean, what do you guys think about taking a game that you you kind of like and you want to keep playing it and saying, you know what, I'm going to tweak this to make it harder. I mean, do you feel antagonistic to that approach? Are you like, I'm going to play it the way the designer wanted it to be made? Or do you, do you like to tweak things?
2: You, you can't see me, Hassan, but there's steam coming out of my ears right now <laughs> yeah I, 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 I really am- don't like how I mean i there there's I have to deeply 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 adore a game before I will do any house rules. and for me to rules and for me to deeply adore a game, I generally shouldn't feel it needs house rules so I almost never do that. I mean that's fine when people do, but i I'm of the uh, persuasion that you know what the designer should have done his job. I shouldn't do house rules. Uh, I'm super weird about that. Mike, how? What's your deal with house rules?
1: I'm kind of the same way. I'm, uh, I'm very resistant to house ruling things. Back in my wargaming days, you know, we playing Warhammer or 40k and stuff, and people would say, "Well, we'll just house rule this," and I was like, "Yeah, yeah," but but <laughs> that's not what they yeah. designed. <laughs> so, but on like you you things... think? Oh, I'm sorry. Go I like ahead, leave, I like to leave things alone and if it needs a house rule chances are I just won't keep playing it <laughs> exactly so exactly
2: games. Mike that's my feeling too if it needs a house rule I'm I'm not gonna bother playing it yeah yeah uh, but Hassan you're saying that wasteland Express delivery service has uh, like you feel like you've you've made it better with house rules
0: I, I would say that I my, my attitude towards house rules is dependent upon the kind of game I'm playing if I'm playing if I'm playing a really tight game um, for example, Euro strategy game, something like Concordia. Then there's no way I'm going to tweak it. Even if even if there's something in the game that I'm like, oh, that that card feels off, I'm just not going to change it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to keep playing it and and feeling out the game that way. But if it's if it's a sandboxy type game like Fallout or like Wasteland Express or like Arkham Horror, which I think you guys are going to talk about, at least the second edition, which I played a ton of. Um, yeah, I I, I've, I tend to fill those games with house rules like I'll type them all up and print it out and remind myself of what my favorite house rules are and they tend to be uh, rules that I like for either solo play or that just jive with my game group to either maybe speed up the game, make it tighter, make it more vicious, whatever, you know, whatever floats our boat.
2: Right, right.
0: Well, you know, we we
2: should actually do an episode on house rules because there there are very few games that I've done house rules for. But when I have done it, it's like you, Hassan, is that I, I want to try to make it super official, type it up, be very above board. That this is just something I came up with. Uh, so, yeah, none of this like loosey-goosey, yeah, we'll just do it this way tonight. Uh, like right. if it's going to be a house rule, make it like a rule, write it up, make it a contract. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, Well, I want to I want to talk about a game that uh, when you talk about the wasteland game not being very interactive, here's something that I've played lately, uh, which I was super attract. It it looks it looks unique, and um, one of my issues with it, unfortunately, is there's not enough player interaction, and I think that might ultimately kill it for, for our group. Uh, but I, I saw a game called Vindication, which is a big old box, it's super expensive. It was not easy to get. Uh, but the the conceit in Vindication, which is what really drew me to it, it's, it's kind of a Euro game in that it's an economic engine builder uh, in that you're dealing with resources and you're using those resources to get stuff to help you win, and part of the game is making a way to make different resources and deciding which resources to concentrate in. You know, do you want coal? Do you want oil? Do you want to try to build steel or do you want to diversify into cattle? It's that kind of game. But instead of goods, the resources are the attributes of your RPG character. Your main resources are uh, strength, inspiration, and uh, knowledge. And, and they do a really cool thing with coloring, where those are the primary colors, and they have it laid out on the board. It's not where each character is a sheet in front of each player. The board, which is where you might normally mark, you know, how much cattle Hassan has versus how much cattle uh, Mike has versus how much I have, the board has places where you mark these with cubes. So if I've got a bunch of cubes in the strengths, box and Hassan only has a couple my dude is stronger than his and it's all very in that regard very directly related to the other players I can always see okay I'm the one who's strong Mike's the one who's going for knowledge Uh, and between these primary colors and the color scheme works out the same in their secondary colors are more or rarer Uh, attributes that are more expensive to get but are more valuable and they are courage for combat Uh, vision gets you magical items and uh, I'm gonna forget the last one Uh, wisdom wisdom gets you traits so instead of goods in a resource management game it is attributes in a resource management game and you're walking your hero around and you're you're building up these attributes and you're quote unquote spending them and that if I'm a super strong guy, I can spend my strong points getting stuff that a strong character would have, you know, warriors or a better mount. Um, so as we're playing and we're focusing in these different resources and building up our characters, we're walking around an island. Uh, and there's some minor interaction in terms of the sites where you spend your resources uh can be controlled and if you control a site when someone else uses it you get some victory points so you want to identify what do the other guys want and you want to grab the sites where they're going to go to buy that stuff so there's some of that interaction (laughs) there's no direct combat though you never fight each other Uh, but but what it ultimately comes down to in the end is whoever has the most in any resource gets a little scoring tile. So if I've got the most strength cards, the most things that you buy with strength, I get a little five point scoring tile. If I've got the most in knowledge, I get a little scoring tile there. If I've got the most in inspiration, oh, I didn't get that one, Hassan has three inspiration cards, I've only got two, he gets the scoring tile. So there's a kind of a race element there to see who has the most in any given attribute over the course of the game. Uh, And I also like that it has a dynamic ending condition. When you start the game, you flip up two cards that tell you when the game is over. But as you're playing, more cards flip up, so suddenly a card might flip up, and it's like, oh, we met that requirement, now the game is over suddenly. Uh, I like a game like that where you can never be – especially in a race game where you want to have – like I'm looking at Hassan to see how much knowledge does he have versus how much I have. Okay, in one more turn, I can get one more than him and get that award, and oops, the game ended. Uh, so it, it does a lot of things that I like, but and, – and it's absolutely unique to me in the way that it plays with these character attributes being resource management. Uh, but I'm, I'm not – it doesn't quite have the interaction that I think I want in a game about heroes running around on an island and fighting stuff. Um,
0: but it is a lovely game. Uh, it's great it's, component. It's, yeah. yeah. It's it's one actually, Tom, that I've been super curious about um, to the point where I, I watched, you know, a bunch of videos for their most recent Kickstarter. So I was, I was really curious to hear your thoughts about it. Um, one of my, one of my concerns with it was that it has this, really cool theme like you said that's something that drew you in um and yet it is it is a euro cube pusher right mm-hmm. i mean you're, you're literally pushing cubes and transforming them into other colored cubes and then using those cubes to, to purchase points in a sense um and part of me part of me worries i i, I have played my fair share of cube pushers but it takes like a, an additional element to really hook me if that's yeah. going to be the core mechanic in the game
2: and what tempers that Hassan in this game, uh, the things that you're buying, super crazily imaginatively thematic. Like you're mainly buying companions that are followers that help you concentrate on different attributes, but they'll also give you a special power. Uh, right. And that that keeps it from being a dry Euro cube pusher. That feels very Ameritrashy, very sort of fantasy. Every character has a name and a title and then right. a class for what he or she does. And when you look at the, you look, I love doing this with the game. You look through the warrior stack, like the strength stack, to see what kind of characters are there, and they're all like warriors and fighters. You look through the knowledge stack, and they're all sages and scribes and teachers and stuff. Uh, So the the what you do with these resources, the actual stuff that you're buying, I really like the flavor there, and I really like how imaginative it is. Uh, It's
0: got lovely artwork on each card.
2: It's got a great look
0: to it, for sure. I think the illustrations and the graphic design are just uh, just amazing. Um, Do you think it's overproduced in the sense of, like, there's these weird giant miniatures that hardly ever come out and things like that? There's
2: two. Um, So it does this weird thing, and I never know quite how to feel about this, where you play the game, but then there are maybe a half dozen what they call modules, which you can add in. And my temptation when I first sit down to play it is, well, I want all of that stuff, so I'm just going to throw it all in there and teach everybody. But I think it's a it's a weird and it's an esoteric enough game that I couldn't do that. So there's all this content in there, like cards that you use to fight each other more directly, or uh, a race to build a monument, or uh, uh, these these different spell, these different magical things you can do, or there's a big miniature where a monster, a big old dragon, can show up in the middle and everybody has to fight it. Um, So there's all these modules in there I haven't used because I've wanted folks to be able to learn the game, and one of them is a big old miniature. That's pretty much the only miniature. You can buy extra miniatures, which are strictly optional, strictly cosmetic, um, but my copy, you know, when you buy the game, it's got this molded plastic insert with a bunch of empty spaces for the the miniatures you didn't buy. And once I realized those weren't gameplay, it's not like – Lords of Hellas, for instance. Uh, like, I'm keenly aware that all the miniatures that I didn't buy for that all have gameplay. Uh, in Vindication, those are just cosmetics, so I don't feel that bad about it. Um, yeah,
0: I, I'm, I'm with you. T- I, feel, I feel a little conflicted about games that come with... Um, All these optional modules, right? That they're like, hey, you know, once you have played the base game, you can slot these modules in. And and Kickstarters nowadays, that's always being used to push replayability and variability. And the the problem with that is I think, I mean, really, I think that what we want as gamers is we want a game that hooks us so intensely that we want to play the same damn game over and over and over again to become masters of it, right? And... How often does it, is it the case that somebody buys a game and says, oh, I like this enough that I'm going to make my game group play it over and over again, but each time we're going to play a slightly different version of it? Um, I mean, I'm sure people do do that. It's just, I'd, I'd much rather be in the situation of like, oh, this game is so good, let's just play the hell out of it until we, we're all playing it at a really high level. Right, right. Yeah, because it, it, one thing that Vindication does
2: do... Uh, and Hassan, actually your your game, Clockwork Wars, does this very well as well. Uh I love the way that it is uh set up and arranged. Like I love that when you open the box, it's super like it knows that an important part of a game is how it's stored. Because the time it takes for you to put the game on the table, any time spent between putting it on the table and actually the first player taking their turn that's all dead time. That time needs to be minimized as much as humanly possible. And right. Vindication is clearly uh, even more so than Clockwork Wars. Like, Clockwork Wars is just super elegant. Everything's got a place. It's pretty clear. Everything you can see, what you need. But Vindication, you mentioned those little trays before. Uh, each each player has a little tray with his stuff. The cards each have slots with icons in the plastic insert telling you where they go. Uh, uh. Like, it's, it's so engineered to minimize that time between putting the box on the table and the first player taking his turn uh, we
0: are becoming so spoiled as gamers everyone should go back and play an avalon hill game from 1977 <laughs> and see what the sh- what shit we were playing with back then with all these little tiny chits with little tiny pieces of information on them that were incredibly important so, and no
2: baggies even included to some of it
0: provide your own baggies and just deal with it and you yeah. play with that you know uh, yeah.
2: But I love, and we'll we'll talk about that. Uh, I think two weeks from now we want to do a podcast on uh, logistics uh, concerns like that sort of thing. But logistically speaking, vindication is a, a thing of beauty. So uh, overall, I like it. I had a, I had a really. Uh, I wouldn't call it a negative experience because it was a bit of a revelation. But I I played with a couple of folks uh, two nights a couple nights ago, and one of the people who played it was his first time, and he's not a big board gamer. He's pretty casual, and he was having an issue with some of the rules because it is an esoteric game. It's not what you're used to. You know, when my character has three strength cubes, I I don't want to spin those. That'll make him weak. Like there's there's weird conceits in there that if you don't play a lot of board games and if you don't play a lot of those euro cube pushers will seem counterintuitive so i was playing with him and he was having some issues getting his head around some of that stuff but he was into the theme and he was liking it and i was kind of like okay well he's probably gonna be discouraged by the time it's over with how badly he loses um but he like won (laughs) <laughs> like, far and away, way, way more than the rest of us. Like, it was a three-player game, and he had almost twice my points. And I, I was just, is that a sign How that of How did that make you feel? Uh, well, I, so to be fair, I, I saw clearly why it happened, is he was just like, okay, I'm just going to knuckle down and focus on this one thing. And I was thinking, oh, that's silly of him. He In this game, you have to diversify. And what I learned that game is, uh, no, you probably shouldn't diversify, is you want to focus on a couple of major areas areas in your character uh so it it taught me about the game but i also have this thing where if somebody wins the first time they play a game and halfway through the game you realize they didn't even understand certain rules i always got a facepalm at that sort of thing (laughs) i don't know if that's a design issue or a me issue or uh yeah so it was just really weird for that to happen in Vindication because I would convinced myself it was a very carefully tuned EuroCube pusher with Ameritrash trappings. Uh, but that's not the case. He just sort of stumbled into a, a beautiful economic engine that he got going, and he ran away with the game. So, uh, Mike, Mike, I have a question. Vindication, is that something... That because I think I recall it being hard to find, I don't even remember how I got it. Uh, but is that something that you see
1: at your store or that
2: you know about?
1: No, I've had requests for it, but it actually is not available yet. It's only Kickstarter copies right now. So, So, okay,
2: I think I, as a matter of fact, yeah, I think I did get it from Board Game Geek from someone's, someone had like it was selling their Kickstarter
1: copies. So, okay, it does not exist in stores yet. Okay, so while, it... while, we, while we were talking, I looked at the distributors and none of them have it listed for ordering for pre-ordering yet, so I don't know when it's coming out. Okay, so
2: that – yeah, it's, so it's a hard one. So I feel bad if I made anyone want it because it's not easy to get, so. <laughs> uh, all right, Mike, the, the one that I want to uh, – I, I want to hear what you think. First of all, what is your background real quick with Fantasy Flight's Lovecraft games? And second of all, what, what do you think of the third edition of Arkham Horror?
1: So I think I've played all of their Lovecraft games, you know, starting with the original Arkham Horror and Elder Sign and Elder Tor, uh, Mansions of Madness, both editions. Elder and, Sign
2: is the one that most people miss, so that you've yeah. established your bona fides very well for
1: including that one, yes. And, and the card games, so I think I've got them all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I had a Arkham Horror 2nd uh, edition with you know, tons of expansions where you needed about a 10-foot-long table to set it all up. <laughs> Uh, and that got to the point where I didn't really like digging it out anymore because with all the expansions, it was kind of a large endeavor. Yeah. Um, so then I kind of switched to Eldritch Horror, which I was a little bit more streamlined, um, kind of similar mechanics with gates showing up and stuff. So I was really intrigued when this third edition got announced, uh, and I picked it up right away. But I just finally got a chance to play it because uh, they've changed it from a kind of traditional board with add-on boards into these little... Hexagon shapes that you kind of pick which depending on the scenario uh, like five or six of them and connect them by streets uh, So the board is very modular. It's obviously set up for lots of expansions. Uh, they don't have any yet uh, and then The actual mechanics of the game are pretty similar to the original as far as the feel but how right. it's actually implemented is quite a bit different um, For example instead of the mytho stack now they have these little uh, chips you draw out of a container Um, there's no gates anymore. It's just these uh, doom tokens showing up in town you have to kind of get rid of. Uh, But then if there's enough doom tokens in an area, it creates an anomaly, which then gets you to the weird scenarios of maybe going to another plane and those kinds of things. Um,
2: It's still got this sense of, uh, and I don't mean this disparagingly, it's just a description, but it's got this whack-a-mole sense still. Yes. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, And then uh, they did some cool things with the deck as far as for certain things you draw from the top of the deck, some things you draw from the bottom. Uh, and then they stole something from pandemic uh, when you get this chit that says Gate Burst, you draw a new card and then shuffle the discard pile back into the deck, so the same locations will start getting uh, doom tokens again. Mm-hmm. So overall, um you know we lost pretty terribly on our first attempt, which is not surprising when we're figuring out the rules.
2: and uh, also, by the way, Mike, a good mm-hmm. sign I think of a of a co-op game. like i i'm I'm suspicious of any co-op game that I win the first time I play
1: for sure. yeah, yeah. co-op games need to be difficult. I know you tend to look at them as saltariums
2: <laughs> But even cooperatively. Like, I, I think if yes. you, you sit down with a group and you play and you win the first time, there's this sense around the table of, uh, oh, okay, <laughs> like, uh, okay, well, we don't need to play it again. We've won. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But uh, overall, I'm pretty happy with it. I want to play it again. Um, they did really cool things where instead of just clues lying around the board, uh, they spawn at certain points, then you shuffle that card into the top of the corresponding area's deck. So you actually have to go... Have encounters to find those clue tokens, uh, which you then use to, uh, you know, seal things and and defeat the elder god. And I, I love that new card play,
2: uh, the the pandemic stuff you're talking about, and the way that you do put those clue cards in the very top, so you're you're actually going to a place looking for a specific thing to happen that's relating to the story, rather than just drawing cards hoping to get items or heal up or whatever. Uh, I love the lessons that they've They've both learned and cribbed in terms of card play from other games. Yeah, uh, that, and, that adds and a
1: lot. I, and I like that those clue, those to, uh, cards you put in the decks are specific to the scenario, so they're exactly themed to whatever it is. You know, cultists going around, or so it's very cool in that it's not just generic happenings. It's also stuff going on with the exact story you're doing.
2: Right, because all that stuff used to be in a Mythos deck, like off to the side, and yep. then the table was all pretty much, oh, just random, pfft, can happen anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like how they've folded the scenario stuff into the geographic locations. That, that mm-hmm. helps a lot, yeah.
1: yeah. And then other little simple things they improved, like um, starting gear. You don't have to d- dig through the item decks anymore. They have a card for each character, so this is just their items. So it, I think they learned a lot from their second edition. So uh, uh, overall, I'm pretty happy with it.
2: From their second edition, and also Mike, I would say from uh, the Arkham Horror card game, uh, mm-hmm. there there are elements of that in there as as well. Uh, I think, yeah, yeah. Uh, my so my my two issues with it. You mentioned the board. Uh, I I do not. I I think that the modular board is super ugly, and I think it also compromises one of my favorite things about these kind of thematic games, which is a sense of place. Like you play one scenario and everything is arranged a certain way but then you play another scenario and then this district is over here and that one's over there when they used to be next to each other like there's no there's no sense of Arkham the same way that there was in the second edition or the same way there's the sense of the world in Eldritch Horror Mm -hmm. uh, when you just shuffle locations and stick them together I understand that adds variability and there's you can do a lot of stuff with scenarios but I think it robs the overall playing field of, of personality. Uh, and I kind of miss that from the earlier games. Uh, and that's yeah, something, and too, that they do, I think, in the card game, is in the card game you go into a bunch of different places, but a lot of, you know they use cards that they lay out modularly to create the place, and I think they thought, yeah, let's do that with Arkham Horror 3rd Edition.
1: Mm-hmm. And I did think it was weird. You know, we played the first scenario they recommended, and Miskatonic University isn't even on the map of that first scenario, which is... Ca- it, caught me as odd, so...
2: <laughs> exactly, like, they'll they'll leave off certain places, and because those those modular tiles are double-sided, mm-hmm. necessarily, sometimes certain places you can't even have in a scenario. Certain places are mutually exclusive, and that's not yeah. how Arkham is structured. Everybody knows that. <laughs> <laughs> Here, here's my main thing, though, Mike, and I'll be curious. Uh, I, I think I've played... It has four scenarios. I've played three of them. Um, I, I I get the feeling... That they have, that they've wanted to, that they've streamlined it down a little bit too much to a kind of a ruthless, puzzly structure for each of the scenarios, and they have sacrificed. And I feel they've, they feel that they've done this maybe for pacing reasons. I'm not sure, but they've sacrificed a lot of the wiggle room for having these wacky adventures and character development stuff. That Arkham Horror Second Edition and Eldritch Horror allowed for. Um, I feel like everything is super tuned that you got to get it in just the right amount of turns, and it's it's got less of that loosey goosey adventure. Hey, what crazy stuff is going to happen? Quality uh, that the previous games had, and I, I miss that. Uh,
1: yeah, and I can see that. Um, yeah, it's definitely the the time pressure is very heavy. I did like that. Uh, at least the first time going through the scenarios, you don't actually know what's going to happen. You know, when this occurs, flip this over and read it, and then your your uh, objective changes. Right, now, which is also
2: exactly from the Ar- the Arkham Horror card card game as well. Right. Is that, yeah, yeah. 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 And the
1: card game addresses that long term by having a zillion expansions. So I don't know if they're going to do that the same for the for the uh, board game because you know after I've played all four scenarios, I'm going to know what's happening.
2: <laughs> right. Right. I, it still does have a lot of replay. Like it's not. I I get what you're saying, but it, there's there's enough randomness in there that I let me confess Mike before playing I look through all of those to see what's going to happen oh my gosh I know (laughs) (laughs) oh dear god (laughs) but I feel like if if they're gonna make it like a okay solve this puzzle the puzzle optimization thing I need to know the elements of the puzzle and <laughs> and to be fair to be fair I don't feel like it detracted from the experience at all
0: for me uh, solitaire okay. uh, so. Tom do you do you flip to the last page of a book or you... <laughs> no Oh my gosh what How dare you equate those two things
2: you. How dare you How dare you sir <laughs> <laughs> There there aren't many games where I am comfortable with being bushwhacked in terms of not knowing what's happening. Like, I kind of want to know. I don't want to just play and blindly guess what's going to happen and then flip over a card and, oh, nope, you should have raised this stat instead of that one, uh, unless it's built into a scenario, by the way. If it's built into a scenario where one of several things can happen, I'm fine with that. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm super weird about that sort of, hey, you don't know what's going to happen in the in scenario.
1: Uh, you're gonna have some trouble when you get your copy of Seventh Continent. <laughs> but see, that's
2: built for that. That's uh, true.
1: It's a choose-your-own-adventure board game, essentially. So.
2: Yeah, and quit teasing me about Seventh Continent. <laughs> oh, when is that gonna be? It's like April now or something. Oh my God, That's so long. <laughs> uh, so but you actually, Mike, you should. Do you have any inside information? Isn't this kind of a long time for Fantasy Flight to have not announced any additional content for Arkham Horror Third Edition?
1: I think so because the game came out just after Halloween. Yeah, uh,
2: what's going I'm, on? Over I'm surprised
1: there? there's not at least two expansions out. So I don't know know what's going on. All right, maybe it's dead. Maybe they're done with it.
0: I I I have often been curious about how how much they adjust their expansion release schedule based on sales, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like if I think about something like Fallout, I think that I wonder if they were like, Okay, let's see if it really blows up and if it does, we're gonna really shift the team to crank out, you know, an expansion every quarter, right? Um the the card game seemed like it really blew up and so they've been I think supporting that very, very strongly. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I yeah. and I wonder if The board game plus the card game plus Eldritch still being a a very popular game is just making it tough for them to find a a, a carve out another niche for this game. I right and And as
1: and as as far as sales go, I actually sell Mansions more than anything as far as the other Lovecraft games. Interesting. Yep.
2: Does Mansions have any sold add-on content? Oh,
1: has a whole bunch of them actually. Oh. Oh, okay. And, and they've they've done some where it's just more board pieces, and then you just tell your app it has more, and the the house can be bigger. And then there's uh, they released all the minis from the first edition that people didn't get because they let you kind of upgrade those miniatures from the first edition to second. Oh, so you Go go ahead, sorry. So they had a couple boxes of the minis you could have gotten from Mansions first edition to play in second to kind of catch up.
2: You're making me super glad I don't like Mansions of Madness. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, we 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 still need to have a conversation about app supported games because I think it would I think it would be interesting. Yes. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah.
2: Uh, let's get to our main events uh th- this podcast for what we've really been playing. Um I- I'll start us off. So, uh Hassan, you said something a couple of weeks ago about one of the things that you love about board games and this is true for a lot of people uh, is the, the tactile element of, of touching the pieces and unfolding the board and shuffling the cards and, and that is an undeniable appeal that computer games will, will never give us of course uh, and it's very familiar and there's almost this comfort food element to unfolding that board and to pulling the cardboard tokens out and you know arranging them where you'll need them in different piles and you know sorting the cards and that shuffle uh, and as people are setting up the game, it's like, here, you shuffle these cards, here, you sort these tokens. Uh, and we're so used to, like, so many games these days have miniatures that you're picking up and you're moving around. And all of these under your fingertips are a very, very familiar feel. I've been playing something lately that I only recently realized offers none of that. And it is too, it's, like, it makes it feel qualitatively different, literally As I'm playing it in that in this game I never touch a piece of cardboard I never move a token I'm never shuffling cardboard uh, paper cards there are no miniatures Uh, there's no cardboard board this game is entirely different materials and you handle them in a different way that makes it feel literally like something you've never done before Um, And I'd been playing this thing for a while before this really dawned on me, is that my fingertips are doing things that they never do in other games, and it just feels weird and and fresh and new and and cool. Uh, So this is a company called Chip Theory Games, and I'm ashamed to say I didn't realize that they called themselves that for the longest time because most of their games involve poker chips. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. I guess I was thinking computer chip. I don't know what, or there was a guy named Chip. I don't know what I was thinking, but Chip Theory Games publishes games that use poker chips as playing pieces, big, heavy, hardy poker chips with artwork uh, printed on them. And the game that I've been playing lately is called Too Many Bones. So real quick, I want to take an opportunity. If you're listening to to this podcast, uh, let me just throw a number at you, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to turn off this podcast because you might save $364.60. <laughs> I'm just gonna float that number, and I'm about to speak very approvingly of something that basically costs that much, so now is the time, turn off this podcast if you're worried about spending $364.60, because that's what all of the content for this game costs. You can buy the core game, I think it's one twenty-nine ninety-five, uh, and there's plenty there, but if it gets its hooks into you like it did to me, there's no stopping before the $364.60. Um, all right, if you're still here, here's what I love about Too Many Bones. In addition to that feel, so the the playing surfaces are all foam mats with little stitched edges, and they're very they're very well made. Uh, the main The poker chips are a big part of it, but dice are also a big part of it. And they're very colorful dice with unique icons on them. There's no simple, actually, there's one for sometimes you need it. There's one D6, but every, and they're all six-sided dice, by the way. There's no 20-sided die or D4 or D12. The entire game is played with six-sided dice, each uniquely printed. Uh, And it's full of them. Uh, So, uh... You've got the the foam mats, and you roll dice and put them in spaces in the foam mats to represent stuff. And where you fight a battle is a foam mat with a very simple 4x4 grid. There's no dungeon crawling. You're not building anything out of tiles. Uh, And then a character on that battle map is a stack of poker chips, each one representing a hit point. So when you take damage or when you do damage, you're lifting a stack of poker chips and taking, you know, the appropriate number off for how much damage you you took and then putting it back. When you're moving a character, you're scooting a, a stack of poker chips. And now I don't play poker, but in my experience, you cannot put poker chips in front of someone without them fingering them. Like poker chips are eminently fingerable. And there's a lot of that in Too Many Bones because that's instead of minis, instead of figures or cardboard tokens, they're stacks of poker chips that are used to represent things. So you've got the poker chips and even there's some cards in the game. Cards are a relatively minor part of it, but even the cards in Too Many Bones, they're not paper. They're made out of this PVC plastic which is super slippery, but also very durable. Uh, it shuffles really neatly. It's really gratifying to shuffle them because of how 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 well they slide together. There's like no friction, which can also cause problems. Whenever I've showed someone this game, invariably, if someone lifts the cards out, they'll like fly everywhere because they're not used to handling plastic cards. <laughs> they're that slippery with each other. Um, so the components feel completely different from other games that you've played. Uh, and that in and of itself isn't why I like Too Many Bones, that's just something that, that I hit upon uh, after having played for quite a while, is this doesn't feel like anything else that I've played. The reason that I really like Too Many Bones is uh, it's, it's a fantasy adventure game where you're building up characters and you're working your way through randomized encounters to beat a boss at the end of the randomized encounters and you're improving your character as you go. Uh, A lot of games do this, where you're building up a character, and they try to make the characters feel different by giving them different elements of resource management or different skills or abilities. And some games are better than others at this. Gloomhaven, for instance, is very, very good at that. There's a a, a widely overlooked game called Mistfall that does really cool card shenanigans in different ways for different classes of characters. I I, ha- I think that Too Many Bones is, at this point, my absolute favorite character-building game for how distinct each character feels. Mm. And what it reminds me of is... Uh, Another one of my all-time favorite co-op solitaire games is called Spirit Island. And Spirit Island has such unique dynamics for each of the, in that game you're playing gods, for each of the gods that you play. Uh, And then the synergies amongst the gods, and there's a whole bunch of them in the box. And, you know, you play one and you just want to play the others. And, okay, now I want to try this one. Spirit Island is this generous, just addicting gratifying toy box of different dynamics for each different god and nothing uh too many bones is right up there with spirit island and i think far and away better than any similar game where they're trying to make asymmetrical characters um and the way they do this is each character is is represented with a foam mat where you can plug in the little dice and then a big old plastic sheet Instead of cardboard, it's a, you know, it's a, like an 8.5 by 11 sheet. Uh, and on one side, it's a list of all 16 of that character's dice. And it breaks down every die face, tells you what each one does. And then on the other side is an explanation of the character's dynamics. So each character is simply that sheet of foam mat and 16 dice. No cards, no tokens. You don't have to look up anything in the rules. It's all there on the sheet. When you buy the core game, the 129.95, you get four characters. If you buy this uh, $90 standalone add-on that they just released called Undertow, you get four more characters. They also sell individually four characters for $25 each. So all <laughs> told, when, if you're in for the $364.60, shipping not included, by the way, if you're in for all of that, you get 12 characters. And my God, each one of these 12 characters, I've only only played like six of them. And I'm dying to play the other six, but I'm too invested in playing the ones that I'm currently playing. Uh, So each of the characters... the The guys at Chip Theory Games are really good at expressing different kinds of characters using the mechanics of their dice. And this very simple battle mat, which is a four by four grid, which you would think that seems awfully limiting. But no, because they've abstracted a lot of stuff, they play with it a lot to make it feel like different kinds of events and different kinds of battles and different kinds of enemies with different vocabularies. Um, So for instance, on the 4x4 grid, you know, you can move around orthogonally your stack of poker chips, and then the monsters are also stacks of poker chips. The very top chip is information about the monster. Um, for instance, something that flies. You know, normally, a flying creature in this kind of game would just get to move a long ways, and it would ignore terrain. But on a 4x4 four four grid, You can't really do that. What what are you going to do with a flying creature? How are you going to express a creature that can fly? What they do is a flying creature, every time that it finishes its turn, you take a little status die, and this is an example of how they use dice instead of tokens. There's a status die that'll have on one side poison, on another side bleeding, and it'll have numbers where you can decrement the poison's effect as it uh, wears down over time. On one side of the status die is a wing. And it means something is flying. So at the end of a flying creature's turn, you take this little status die with a wing and you put it on top of the stack of poker chips that represents the eagle or whatever it is, or the griffin, the manticore, whatever you're fighting. You put it on top of there, and now that creature cannot be targeted by anyone. Hmm. It's flown away. And then next turn, you take it off, and then you move the stack to the weakest unit of yours on the board, and it attacks it. So this represents, in the parameters of this little four-by-four grid, a creature that flies away and then dives down on somebody who's weak. And that's this consistent way of building personality for flying creatures. So that when you see a flying creature, you're like, "Uh, ah, you know, my weak guys are going to be vulnerable. I can only attack it every other turn. Um, They've done a great job with a relatively few verbs and spaces and pieces expressing the idea of flying. And Too Many Bones is chock full of this kind of stuff in terms of the monsters, in terms of the character builds, in terms of the effects like poison and flight. Uh, and I'm I'm just crazy about this thing.
1: Uh, That's really
0: cool. I, I have a couple quick questions for you, Tom. Yes, yes. So I, one, I mean, it sounds it really does sound amazing. And I really respect how much work these guys put into, I think, developing and balancing their characters and. Um, do you think there are too many verbs in the game? Like, do you think that when it comes down to all the, like, when I looked on the backs of those character things and saw mm-hmm. all the different dice and yep. all the different, like, oh, these monsters can be poison and flying and this and this and this and this and this. Right. I mean, is that is that a barrier to... Um, learning the game or is it really satisfying because every battle's going to play out as a unique puzzle and you just once you once you get the language it's it just rolls that that is a that is a great question because it can look
2: super daunting and you go online and you look at all those dice you know you look at a picture of the box being opened and there's all those dice and you look at the sheet like the way i described it made it sound pretty elegant but these sheets are crammed full of information okay oh, yeah. it's it's, yeah. it's small print there's boxes that are set out uh and you might think, oh, my God, what a mess. What an Ameritrash mess. Um, but for a couple of reasons, uh, I, I, I think it's not an issue. One of the reasons is uh, that when you play an adventure, uh, in any anytime you sit down to play, what you're doing there's a campaign mode, which I'm a little iffy on, but anytime you sit down to play, you are working your way through a number of randomized battles, and each battle's a card you draw, and it tells you how to lay out the battle. And then after a certain number of those, you have to fight the boss. And the boss is going to be a difficult battle. So ideally, you've leveled up your characters over the preceding battles to be powerful enough to fight the boss. The boss that you're going to fight against is going to limit the creatures that are in the mix that you will encounter. So for instance, if you're fighting the orc boss, orc bosses, you will take all of the chips that represent orcs Uh, Dragons, and I think uh, orcs come with goblins or trolls, I forget which one. But you you only take certain chips and mix those into the game. And Too Many Bones is super good about, you know, only the dragon creatures fly. That whole flight mechanic I played, I I mentioned, you will never encounter that unless you're fighting a boss that tells you to use the dragon creatures. Uh, Poison, poison mechanic, that's only the creatures out of the bog. Uh, Actually, I lied about flight, there are beasts that fly as well. But but for the most part, these these unique verbs and abilities are limited to specific types of monsters. In any given gameplay session, you're only going to deal with a handful of those types of monsters. Uh, So you're only going to have, it's going to parse out only a few of the verbs at a time. You know, there's a list of, I I think, 30 different special abilities, uh, and most of those you won't encounter on any given uh, adventure. But gotcha. the more the more important way that I think it limits this is when you look at all those dice for each character because each character 16 dice and that's that's above and beyond the basic attack defense number of actions you get and hit points dice like those are also dice. So basically any given character is the position of 20 different dice. However, when you start out a character, you get pretty much none of those. Those 16 dice They're off the table for the most part. You've just got your your hit points, your uh, number of actions you get, your attack, and your defense. You've just got four numbers to look at all represented with a D6. As you level up, you are choosing that that piece of uh, plastic, which I'm wiggling right now. (laughs) That's a menu. You are looking at this, deciding, okay, I'm going to level up. And each foam mat has a skill tree uh, printed on it where the dice are sitting off to one side. And when you level up, it's basically... A matter each time you you level you pick a die and you put it in that foam mat according to the skill tree you can't just jump ahead you can't choose all 16 of them certain dice have prerequisites that are clearly laid out in uh, in ink on the foam mat uh, so you're picking you're layering in some of the same beginning dice every time but then the character build can expand in multiple directions as you play so for instance the first time you play like the healer. The healer's the basic, uh, super easy archetype. Everybody knows how healers work. Uh, you can choose your healing, of course, that's one tree, but the healer also has a tree for these buffs that, it, that he can apply to other characters, but they come with a risk of accidentally poisoning himself. The idea is that he's playing with uh, with potions. Um, so one game, you might just go on straight healing. You might work your way down that tree. Another game, you might explore these little potions. Uh, he's also got like poison darts that he shoots and, and those can be improved. And so on a third game, you might explore that tree. And the nature of the game is such that for the most part, any given boss that you fight you're only ever going to get to work maybe one and a half of the skill trees. So it's forcing you to look at a menu of verbs and decide which ones you want to try uh, rather rather than saying, okay, here's 16 dice, figure it out. Um, right. And I'm also... Always-
0: I'm always, frust- I'm always frustrated with when when designers make a really cool skill tree and that's just calling out to try different things. And then you realize over the course of a game or a campaign that you can actually fill the whole damn thing out and that you're just going to get everything by the end. So exactly. I, I, lo- I like the tough choices that it forces you to make when you're like, oh, what a, what am I going to do this particular session?
2: Right, right, yeah. And, and their, their character builds are super clever. Like they've got one guy, <clears throat> there's a... There's a guy who uh, builds robots, and it's a pretty straightforward thing. Is he's a, he's like, It's like a pet class. Um, and the die that he rolls sits in the center of the little grid, and it has an arrow that, that you can, t- depending on how you turn the die, that points at one of the adjacent things on the grid. And that little die in the middle, it's, it's like a clock dial. You know, imagine the eight squares around the central square, and the central square is where you put the die, and it's got a, a hand pointing in one direction. However you turn that die activates one of the eight squares around it, and that's your robot. You know, these eight squares around it are the different robot abilities, like a gun or an air horn to stun people or armor so that it can tank. Uh, and so whenever I roll that little, whenever I uh rolled for my robot to come out I'm pointing that central die towards one of its skills when you upgrade that central die it's got two hands on it now so now it can fire you know it can point at two different places on those eight places around the central die and my robot has two abilities then when I upgrade that it's not just the two hands it's a sweep it's a range between the two hands where I put it down and now I've got like four adjacent dice around that central die, and, and my robot has all four of those abilities. Um, so even in, in, in that instance, and that's just one part of his build, uh, the, the kind of robot that you build and the different capabilities that you research and how many of them you can use and how they're positioned, those are all part of this one character's build, and no other character of the 12 characters has anything like that. Uh, and I haven't even played that guy yet. Uh, <laughs> so I, I just, I, I really admire how clever these guys are with the character development, and that's, that's a huge thing. I've been playing a lot of games lately, like you know things like Gloomhaven or uh, uh, Shadows of Brimstone, or, or, or uh, where where you're upgrading characters and you're using these the, the game's dynamics to express a healer or a, a wizard, uh, and no game has done it as, as to my mind at this point, as as well as too many bones.
1: Um, So Tom, have you played this only solo or with other people?
2: Only solo, but I will say a lot of times I'll play a solitaire game and I'll think, oh, this would be terrible co-op because I'm here doing an exciting thing on my turn and I'm doing a battle and I've got this cool magic item and you know I I have this list of spells to choose from and my turn, a lot of exciting things are gonna happen. Okay, Mike, it's your turn. Oh, you're the cleric? Uh, Just heal me two hit points. Okay, we're done with you. Now it's (laughs) his turn. Uh, Because of how rich the character builds are in Too Many Bones, I I think this is one of those co-op games where everybody's gonna have a lot of cool stuff to do. It's also a game too where everybody levels up the same. When you flip over a card to do a battle, You either pass the battle or you don't pass the battle. If everybody gets killed, you don't pass the battle, you don't get the reward. If at least one person survives, didn't matter if you died, no big deal, as long as at least one person survives, everybody gets the reward. So everybody's leveling up in lockstep and gaining the same amount of advancement and the same additional number of dice to consider, Uh, so I think everybody's Everybody uh, is basically getting more complex characters at the same rate. And even if you're doing something as simple as healing, you still have interesting and difficult choices to make. So I play it solitaire, and a lot of solitaire games I play, I think, man, I would never want to force my friends to play this. Too Many Bones, like Spirit Island, by the way, is like, oh, man, I really want to show my friends this. Um, So I I think it's a a really solid co-op game. Cool. And one one less thing. Oh, go ahead. Sorry.
1: I was going to say, is there persistence between games? Like if you advance your character, does that carry over? Or do you start over at the beginning each time?
2: $24.95, Mike, is the price for Tyranny, <laughs> the campaign expansion. <laughs> uh, and I don't I, I don't recommend it. It's not uh, – it, it feels really obligatory. It's one, one place where I was like, yeah, they, they really bunted on this. Uh, you can string together – so the, the core game comes with seven bosses – and then mm-hmm. if you buy Undertow, which is the standalone expansion, that's another seven bosses. Uh, and when you play, you either draw randomly or pick one of the bosses. And you're like, okay, we're going to fight our way towards this guy and see if we can beat him. Uh, their little campaign thing is just, hey... Uh, randomly draw a boss, and then you're going to flip up a campaign card. And if you beat that boss, you can carry over one or two elements when you fight the next boss. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you can, uh, and you can draw scars, which is a negative <laughs> buff that you stick on your character. And now you can only use two attack dice instead of three. So there's an obligatory campaign, but and I normally love campaigns, and I normally, Mike, really need what you're talking about, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I don't. Here, like I, okay. I, I feel really. If you're gonna, if you really don't want to spend the full uh, $364.60, you can get that down to about $340 by skipping the campaign expansion.
1: Uh, yeah, I just added all of these to my cart here, and it's with there's <laughs> like a like uh there's like an ally pack and an adventure map. Yeah, and... <laughs> I was gonna
2: say, and I, I went all that, in for
1: those, Mike, because it up to $417. Yep, yep, and I, I went ahead and got those because. <laughs>
2: yeah i just i' i you can get a mat for the for tracking the your your progress. you can buy heavier poker chips, so the poker chips are awesome they're super heavy they've got great printing on them they're durable they just clack together great but when you're making a stack of poker chips, most of them are these red chips that represent health. And in the core game, those red chips that represent health are super flimsy, super slippery plastic chips, not the heavy plastic. So they're constantly sliding around. It's super easy to like knock. When you fight a boss, it has like nine hit points. That's huge. It's a super tall stack and it's super easy to like knock it over and they slip. So the the crappy, slippery health poker chips that come with the game are terrible. But 24.95, you can buy super heavy health poker chips, which I, I went ahead and oh, did. Oh, dear it, God. <laughs> I know, I know.
0: So is this game worth eight Euro games that are $30 each or $40 each?
2: I could not tell someone what something is worth because that means different things to different people. But <laughs> I can say, as someone who has been on uh, several buying sprees lately, I have not regretted this. This is... Yeah, this is the only one that I've not regretted for a moment. Other ones I've certainly had misgivings about. Uh, and I'm talking about where you really buy into a whole group of things. Uh, but this is one that I've had no misgivings about. Like, it, it's a lot of money for, for me, for, for any person. Uh, and I, I haven't regretted it at all. Uh, cool. So, That's great. And, and, and real, real quick before we go, because I, I could – Babylon on forever about this uh, I want to say one more thing that I really like about it and that's the variety of battles that you have with the encounters because you flip over a card you've got an encounter it's on that 4x4 four four grid the monsters have personality the character build that you create that has personality that has a lot of variability a lot of flexibility there Even the battles that flip up, these guys manage to do some really clever stuff with that simple grid and the way the battles work. And I just want to point out a lot of times it's, say, you just fight these creatures and maybe there's this one optional modifier, this choice you can make. But sometimes you'll flip up a card and the guys at Chip Theory Games get really playful. So for instance, there's a card that represents, hey, you've walked into a forest and there's, there's small game everywhere, go crazy hunting. And it tells you on the card, on this four by four grid, take one poker chip and put one on each space on the grid. Now you have a certain amount of turns to kill as many of those one hit point creatures as you can. And every turn, the creatures will consolidate, or as a creature that's adjacent to another one will go on top of another one, so they get harder to kill over time. But it's this weird little just puzzle where you're running around punching things with one hit points, and then they've slightly got a couple more hit points, and it's harder to kill them. And eventually, there's like one big stack that you're chasing down and trying to kill. Every poker chip that you kill, it says, "Hey, you, you hunted game. You feed yourself really well. You're, you're full." Every poker chip you kill, put it on your mat, and those are extra hit points you have in the next battle. Which is this really cool thematic way of, hey, we're going on an adventure, we found a bunch of game, we gorged ourselves, and now we're really rested and ready to go into the next battle. And I just thought that was super clever uh, to create a little puzzle with... a bonus that carries over in a unique way uh i just fought a battle that says okay in this battle instead of fighting the normal units that you would fight there is an endless supply of level one super easy units two of them come out every turn you can never win by killing everyone which is how you normally win instead every time you kill a guy flip it over to the other side and now it's a dead body and the fiction when you come to this particular uh encounter is There's a a river crossing, but monsters are constantly fighting over the river crossing, and they've destroyed the bridge, and the only way to get across is to kill enough monsters and use their bodies as a bridge. So the whole goal (laughs) in this game is you've got to flip these bodies over and manipulate them where you've got a straight line down one of the columns. And the moment that you get that last body in a straight line, and you can use your actions to move them. But even then it becomes a difficult puzzle. The moment you get this straight line going, you've won because you've created a bridge across the river. And that's like a super cool, like a bunch of weak things come out and they still have their unique abilities. You know, some of them might fly. Some of them might cause poison. But what I've got to do is move them into a specific position and kill them to create this little line. Um, Another thing, and this is the last thing I'll mention, uh, you draw a card that says, hey, you've come across a, a camp a hospital camp of monsters. They're diseased monsters. Uh, they're, they're really sick. They're not up to full health. Uh, you can uh, you can fight them if you want. Uh, there's a bunch of them, but each one only has two hit points. So draw a bunch of random monsters like you normally would according to the rules, but each one only has two hit points. Uh, go. and th- And you're like, okay, that's great. They're super weak as long as I can kill them quickly. Some of the monsters that I drew were uh, trolls who heal. Uh, so they started with the two hit points, but over each successive turn, because a troll in, in a camp, I guess, in a disease camp, he's going to heal himself. He doesn't need doctors. Uh, these, these trolls got like super powerful, and I was expecting to just fight a bunch of weak stuff, but because there were trolls in the back that got stronger and stronger, uh, I, I totally lost. Like The challenge to beat up this horde of weak, diseased units suddenly turned into me fighting a couple of full-strength trolls because they subverted, and it's thematic, this idea of weak, diseased creatures who can't heal themselves swar- swarming around. Um, so I, I just love what these guys have done. Crazy amounts of money. Uh, and unlike when I normally go on buying sprees like this, I, I don't regret it at all.
1: Yeah, that sounds really cool. All right. Unfortunately, and you can only order that direct as far as I know, right?
2: It's exactly, yeah. They only sell it direct uh and I, I, don't, I, I think they do Kickstarters, but yeah, you go to their store and you buy this stuff like i i'm constantly looking for good prices on things i don 't think any retailers have this like is yeah, that, is it's... that like like Mike, could you theoretically sell this or
1: i don 't know actually, uh, while we were talking, I emailed them to check, but I doubt it because it says right <laughs> at the top of their store the one and only place to buy our games
2: yeah because i 've um... looked around like there's a there are great sites you can go to to check like where are things cheap and and I've never seen this anywhere else, so I, I think they've kind of got a stranglehold on it,
1: yeah and I, uh, and I saw it last year at Gencon. They had a, a decent mm-hmm. sized booth, and the components looked awesome. I like the little neoprene mats. Yeah. I just was I kind of balked at the price, but uh,
2: and I cannot like more... blame anyone because it's a lot of money, yeah <laughs> right yeah, so all right, so enough of me fondly barbling about too many bones. Uh, let's see, Mike, what is this duck game?
1: So uh, I've been playing the Quacks of Quiddlingburg. Quidlingburg? I don't know. There's actually no, no ducks, despite I, th- I thought there were ducks, but no. It's what? Actually qu- it's quacks as in uh, doctors and uh, oh. charlatans. I was totally thinking it was going to be something like Root with cute
2: little animals or something. Uh.
1: <laughs> so it is a a, a game about making uh, potions, um, not like Potion Explosion. It's more of a press your luck game. uh uh-huh. So each player has uh, uh, their own board, which looks like a big cauldron uh, spiraling out from the middle, and you have a bag, uh, a little black bag with chips in it. and uh, you draw chips out and they'll have numbers on them one through four. And uh, you're gonna, if you draw out a number one, you put it in number one spot. If you draw a number two, you go two more spots than put it. Uh, so like a, a number four chip gets you four uh, points at a time. And based on how far you get out in the spiral it gives you money and victory points. Uh, and then what makes it interesting is all the chips, there's different colors and they have different effects. So at the base level, there's these white chips and they're, they're bad. Um, when you get seven points worth of them, your uh, cauldron explodes and there's a penalty for that. Uh, and then there's a bunch of other colors. There's orange, which are pumpkins, which are just fillers. And then I think there's five or six other colors. And depending on how you set up the game, there's four different things that they can do. So uh, in the kind of the beginner mode, or I should say uh, the first set of them, there's things like uh, if you play yellow chip, you get to remove the last white one. So it kind of and put it back in your bag. So, you know, if I was as you're playing and I might be, you know, I'm up to four white chips. Uh, I'll play a yellow one. I could put one of those the last one I put back in my bag. Uh, and what's cool is that everyone plays simultaneously. You're not taking turns. Ooh, I like that. Sit sitting there drawing chips out of your bag, filling up, and then you say, I'm done, or my cauldron exploded, Uh, and then once you're done, uh, everyone's done. Uh, You kind of total up scores and see if there's any effects from the chips. Um, I've played it, let's see, three times now. Uh, I won once. Uh, Everyone seems to love it. It's a very fast game, uh, partially because of the simultaneous play, Mm -hmm. Uh, and you play through nine different rounds. Um, At one point in the game, you have to add an extra white chip, uh, but each round is draw chips from your bag until you 're done, see how much money you got, and then use that money to buy more chips for your bag so i if I want to specialize in the green chips, which uh in the first set give you extra points if they 're at the end of your spiral um I would you know it's like ten ten uh the money does you don't actually collect money because you have to use it immediately, <laughs> so they 're almost like uh buying points. Um, so then you add chips to your bag so you're diluting the possibility of it blowing up because there's fewer white ones. So um, there, like uh, just as an example some of the other abilities uh, in the first set. Uh, there's these black chips and at the end of the round whoever has the most on their board gets a bonus. Um, there is these blue ones. When you draw them you get to preview the next two draws and decide if you want to uh, put them on the board or put them back in the bag. So uh, let's see there's green which i already mentioned um there is red ones which based on the number of pumpkins you placed before the red one kind of boost how far they go so there's a spiral and i think by the end like the outermost level the spiral is 35 spots so you're drawing and trying to get all the way up there and at, at that level you're getting a whole bunch of you're getting 35 points worth of buying and i think 15 victory points um so then uh you know it, you're, uh, you're building, uh, going through these rounds over nine different rounds, uh, and then just uh, totaling up score at the end.
2: It sounds like, it, do you know uh, Roll for the Galaxy?
1: I have not played Roll for the Galaxy. I've played uh, uh, Race for the Galaxy, but not Roll.
2: Good, cause it sounds like Roll for the Galaxy, where everyone is uh, drawing their dice and rolling them and manipulating them at the same time, and then sort of figuring out their scoring outcomes. Uh, mm-hmm. And the, the pacing of that is great. Uh, mm-hmm. As well, where everybody, where you're never having to wait on someone. Well, you're you you're usually not having to wait on something because you're doing the same workload as they are simultaneously.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and and you're not working from the same spiral, right? Each person has no. their own spiral.
1: Each has their own. Uh, okay. And then there's a there's a little wood chip that shows you where you're going to start placing them. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things you can do throughout the game is uh, use these rubies you earn to upgrade that spot. So instead of starting at zero, I start at one. And then by the end of the game, you might be up to you know. Nine ten, So you have a kind of a head start on what you're getting each turn. And then the other cool thing they have is they added a mechanic to prevent runaway victories. Mm. Uh, so along the victory point mark, there's these little rats. It's kind of medieval themed. And you count and the rats have their tails overlaying sections of the track of points. And you count up where your marker is to the leader. And however many rat tails you passed, you get to basically to start that far ahead on your spiral. There's mm-hmm. a little rat marker. Mm-hmm. So even though someone might be twenty points ahead of you, you're going to get ten extra uh, uh, starting positions because of the little wrap mechanic. Uh, looking at a picture of it here, what are those cool little like spell book tiles? So those are what describe uh, what the actual chips do. So you. Uh, oh, I see the colors. Right, right. Yep, yep. And because they're variable, uh, each chip has four different possibilities, other than the generic ones like the white and the um, white, black, and orange are always the same. Uh, but the rest of them have uh, four different possible uh, abilities, and they're all different. So there's, they recommend playing them as sets uh, to begin with. So I'm using all number ones, all number twos, all number threes. Oh, thons. like it can vary from game to game, you're saying? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that sort of thing. Okay. So in addition to the sets, they've tested to work well together. Uh, but you can go completely random and you know use number three of the red and number two of the green. Have you done uh, that, and... or have you, stuck with, you say you stuck with the recommended basic... Functions. I've only used the first set so far because uh, all three times I was teaching new people. Right. Uh, but I do want to try some of the other ones because I've been, you know, I was peeking and there's a lot of different uh, different things they're doing with this mechanic, um, either from comparing how many chips you drew to someone else, or if you did something first. There's
2: oh, like making it more interactive. It sounds like a more yep. competitive, yeah, right. Yep. Yeah.
1: So Mike, I got
0: the, yeah this. This game, I mean, it's definitely one that I've had my eye on. It looks super appealing and and really family-friendly, and so I'm always looking for something I could play with my kids and my wife. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, it seems like it's selling like hotcakes. I was wondering if that was your perception, but also... You know what? Do you, what do you think the level of it is? Do you think it is a pure gateway game that is something you could introduce anybody to the hobby with? Is it a good family game? Is it is it not going to be compelling enough for serious gamers? Quote unquote.
1: I think for serious hardcore grognard eurogamers, it's going to be more of a palate cleanser. Uh, but it is definitely uh, family friendly. I've played with my kids here. Uh, we taught them how to play, and they enjoyed it. Um, it's. You know, I don't I don't even know what it is rated on Board Game Geek. It's not super complicated, but there's enough going on to keep you interested, because um, you can kind of pick your strategy of I'm gonna focus on this colored chip because it's gonna give me a certain kind of bonus, uh, and there there's a finite resource of these chips, so sometimes they run out if people are trying to do the same thing. So I I, I think there's a decent amount of depth as far as strategy, um, but it's definitely a quick play, you know, an hour long game
0: how much How much of the joy in the game comes from watching somebody else's cauldron explode
1: <laughs> <laughs> Schadenfreude. <laughs> there, there is, there is a, a it's nice when that happens uh, they give you a couple safety mechanisms uh, you have this potion you can use uh, to cancel out the last white one you drew so you start out with your bag where there's one of the white chips is worth three so that's very easy to get you over to seven uh, so you can cancel it out once and then rebuy that potion with uh, with Ruby's uh, and then the other thing, exploding your cauldron does is you can either get victory points or buy new chips, but not both.
2: M- Mike, why is this game doing so well?
1: Um, well, it was well reviewed on uh, uh, what is that? Stand up, sit down, uh, sit down, whatever that is. Uh, uh, shut up and sit down. Thank you. <laughs> um, I don't. It's a clever design. It's accessible. Um, I don't know. It won a bunch of awards in Europe. I know too. Okay the kinder award i believe mm-hmm. i think
0: i think it's a it i think people like push your luck and that was the one thing i was thinking about as you were talking about it is that um one, I, one of the issues I have with push-your-luck games is that I am an incredibly risk-averse person. I think my wife would agree with me on that. Like, I'm just not someone who takes takes risks. And I think that spills over into my gameplay, too, sometimes. <laughs> and so r- games that are based entirely on push-your-luck mechanics, I tend, I'll be the person who'll be like, I'm going to stop pulling chits now, right? And I'll just play it safe. Um, and so I, I, sometimes those games don't quite... Hit me as 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 exciting as it would for somebody else who's like I'm going to push it I'm going to push it I'm going to push it
1: Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and and you do get to kind of play around with how much uh, risk there is by because you get to put more chips into the bag
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know a viable strategy is buy tons of the cheaper chips the ones that only have ones on them just to decrease your chances of getting any of the white ones which are bad
2: Right Right Yeah no screw it I'm going to go as risk I'm going to be as risky as can be and if it blows up, that's fine. If it doesn't, I'm gonna win the hell out of this game. <laughs> I, I'm the worst at push your luck because I'm all about push and not about luck. It's just push, push, push. Oh, I failed, of course. Like yeah. I, I'm the Hassan. I'm the polar opposite of you. Uh, <laughs> if there's push your luck, it's basically me pushing it until something blows up. Yeah, right.
1: Uh, and, and when it does blow up, you know, it's not catastrophic. It's just you're probably you know the main decision is whether or not you get victory points or uh, more chips. Right. Uh, and then. The person who got the furthest out in their spiral each round gets to roll this die, which lets them get an award, which might be a victory point, or push your starting position up one spot, or a free chip for your bag. Uh, And so there's, you want to be the most successful round just for that little bonus, but, you know, that's playing against the chance of it blowing up.
2: Are you allowed to look in your bag at what chips are there at any time?
1: Do you know? It doesn't really say either way. You You know what's in there to start, and then you just keep adding more stuff. And you don't ever remove chips from the game. So even when you have a mechanic that lets you take one back off the board, you have to put it back in the bag. Okay.
2: So you guys don't mind then if before I draw, I look in and see what's in there.
1: <laughs> I, I would say I wouldn't mind if you looked at the beginning of a round, but after right. that, probably right. no. Okay.
0: <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think that's right. I don't think you're allowed to look once you start pulling. I yeah. think at that point, it's like it's partly like, holy crap, I forgot what I bought. Oh, my God. All
2: <laughs> right. All right, what if we're playing a deck builder? Can I look through my deck of cards if I promise to shuffle it afterwards?
1: Only if you have a demonic tutor from Magic the Gathering.
2: Oh, look at you. You're Magic the Gathering cred. Very nice, Mike. Thank
1: you. That's an old school card.
2: Uh, all right. Well, uh, and, and you say this is a palate cleanser. Like uh, the, the real playing time would be what, would you guess? Is this an under an hour game?
1: uh i once you know what you're doing it's 45 minutes to an hour Easy. okay
3: good all right
2: uh well let's hear about something that's the opposite of a palate <sighs> cleanser <laughs> i don't know team. i don't know what to make of you bringing this up hassan like i broke up with this game so long ago during third edition uh <laughs> what's this thing that you've played and is it as bad as it was before
0: um, I'm going to try to convince you and maybe uh, people in the audience to give uh twilight Imperium a try. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, part, part of my goal in this is that I'm, I'm almost talking to myself, um, a version <laughs> of myself, like from a year ago, who was like, I'm never going to play that stupid game. That That's looks,
2: where I am. Yep. Exactly. That looks
0: awful. And it looks like a mess. And it looks like a game from 1997. And <laughs> um, but i am going to i am going to wax pretty positive about this i have had a good experience with it and with the caveat that i've only played fourth edition once and with a group of there was only four of us and there i know there are twilight imperium snobs out there who are going to say oh you played four players that's the worst way to play you know um so i'll what, say meaning uh,
2: what you need at least
0: 5 is the idea? Yeah that you okay. need at least 5 or 6 to make okay. it make it 6 make 6 it.
1: is the max right? Yeah yeah okay. six, 6 yeah i i played third a couple times, but never fourth. So I'm curious.
2: Yeah, me too. I'm I'm in the same boat as Mike here.
0: Yeah. So the quick summary is um, that this is a, a fantasy flight product. This is their fourth edition. The first edition, which was designed by Christian Peterson, the the recently retired head of FFG, um, came out in 1997. And this is their their newest version. Many people would say it's the most streamlined edition that they've come out with. Um, it is a competitive game of Galactic Conquest, so if you've ever played like, a computer game like Masters of Orion, this is, in theory, the, the, one, of the, one of the best board game approximations of that experience that you can have. Um, it's, a, it's a 4X game with, I think, um, emphasis on the expand, exploit, and exterminate part of the game. Um, and the general, the general feel of the game is what you might expect from just looking at it which is you're going to start at a set of home planets Everybody, there's a, there's a map in the center of the table that is made up of all these different hexes and on these hexes are different planets and you're going to start with a fleet and you're slowly going to expand your fleet and conquer these various planets as you conquer them you will be Taking over the resources that they can offer to you, and there are only two resources that they can offer, which I think is is nice. That's fairly streamlined. Um, you're going to use those resources to typically, um, you know, upgrade both your technology or build more ships for your fleet. And eventually, um, what you're trying to accomplish is not to exterminate all the other players, but rather to fulfill a certain number of objectives. Um, Some of the objectives are worth one point. Eventually you'll be unlocking two-point objectives and the first player who hits a certain um, threshold of points, typically ten, I think that's for the regular game, um, is going to be the winner. And um, I'm not going to talk about, you know, changes from third edition. Uh, Mike would probably be able to talk about that more than I can. There is a really good, I will throw a shout out to the shut up and sit down guys. They did a pretty cool amateur documentary called Space Lions which is worth a watch if you're if you're interested in Twilight Imperium. It 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 tracks the development of fourth edition um with them actually you know, getting an inside look at some of the 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 meetings that FFG had as they were coming up with the idea for fourth edition and it's pretty it's pretty cool. Um I will say that I think that the end result was successful. I think that this is what I would call a, a very satisfying definitive edition. It it feels very, very complete. It doesn't feel like it needs any expansions, which is I think something that third edition suffered from is it kind of labored under the weight of all these editions, right. Um, that built up over time, but you, you buy fourth edition, which is pricey, but you're getting a really, really complete game in that sense. Um, mm-hmm. so what I think what I, what I'll, what I'd like to chat about is I'm going to start with a brief bad move to a big good and then end with another bad. That's going to be my flyer. <laughs> um, so the, the, the brief but obvious bad is that it's a long game. It definitely is. And, you know, they, I think they tried to emphasize that, Oh, fourth edition is streamlined. You can get it done much faster. But the fact is it's still long. You're still going to need, um, you know, in our case, we were, we four players. It took us 10 hours to finish our game. And, oh. I, and we're, And and we
2: are
0: are slow. I'll say that we are generally slow people and we were learning the game and we we ended up breaking it up over multiple sessions, which I think I I mentioned to you guys before. So we didn't set aside an entire Saturday to play it. And I, I think I preferred it that way. I'm not sure how what my emotional response to the game would be if we had set aside a single day and kind of um, suffered through the exhaustion of, of one complete session. I know that that's how people typically play it and like to play it, but I I quite enjoyed breaking it up. Um, it made me, it, it, it gave me the feeling of still like this really epic game with a great buildup and arc, which is what something I'm gonna talk about. But um, just when I was starting to get really tired by all the decision-making, we got to go home and take a break. A um, uh,
2: quick question about that that game like is is this one of those games where, over the course of ten hours, I know the whole time i don't have a chance of winning because Mike is doing so well <laughs> like or is there any catch up mechanic because I actually like that's one of my issues with long games isn't the time per se, right. but long games that shut out players who are just spinning their wheels waiting for someone else to win is that does it address that in
0: any way? Well, you're, 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 you've spoiled my, my end bad, oh. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but
0: that's fine. I'll, I'm going to bring it up now because I, this is a game that um, I, there absolutely can be surprise wins. So, in fact, I, I would argue that this is a game where If you take a quick lead, that's actually a really bad idea, right? Because you you will paint a target on your head, and it is very easy to gang up on the leader. And I think that's part of the politics of the game, and I don't see it as actually a negative feature. I think it's an interesting... It's one of those games where it's it's interesting to try to sit in second place um, Mm -hmm. and bide your time and then do a mad rush for four or five victory points in a single turn and win the game. Mm -hmm. And... I think that's by design for sure, but Tom, um, you're absolutely right. Um, this is this is definitely a game where one person certainly could just have a really shitty time, and that that shitty time might start at like the, the second or third hour, and there's still three to four hours more to go in the game. Right. right. And I'm not sure how how you would address that. Right. It's just like. Somebody gets, somebody gets slammed, somebody makes a, a couple mistakes, somebody gets their fleet absolutely slammed, they get their homeworld captured, and they're just reeling. And maybe they have just a couple ships and a couple planets that everybody's like, oh, okay, we'll let you hold on to that. But really, at that point, I have no idea what you would do. You know, okay. um, You could maybe try to politically weasel your way back into the game, but you're going to be suffering and you're going to be having kind of a bad time. Right, right. Okay, then what's the yeah. good thing? Because that's that's a tough thing to overcome for, for, sure. for me. Yeah. Totally. No, and I, I totally get that. Especially like you said in a long game. It's one yeah. thing if that's a sixty minute game. Right. Um, but in an eight hour game, yeah, no, totally. <laughs> um, no, I think that the good that I wanted to chat on is that this is a this is a game again that surprised me. I wasn't prepared to like it as much as I did. And I think the the thing as I was uh, you know, pondering it afterwards, the thing that really stood out to me is that the narr the the narrative arc of the game is really compelling. I think it has several acts that occur throughout throughout the game, and that's why the length is actually a positive feature. And each of those acts will appeal to a different kind of player. So, the the beginning of the game is very much a phase of slow expansion and growth, which is very satisfying to you know, um, quote unquote builders, right? Like people who like that feeling of, oh, I'm building and growing and I'm gathering resources and building up my planets. And I'm not really running into anybody yet. And this is, this is great. And that's going to be your first, you know, hour or two of the game. Then you're going to start touching borders with people, um, initiating trade. The, the central planet in the galaxy is this planet called Mechatol Rex. And once somebody, Um, takes that planet over and initiates something called the agenda phase which is basically a political phase and all of this this arc of the game this part of the game is is very satisfying to negotiators people who really enjoy social negotiation in their game and that really is a a major part of twilight imperium is being able to navigate alliances effectively and the game has some very satisfying rules um, to support that i think and maybe in our last podcast, I talked about how I actually don't like social negotiation in my war games. But I actually found it really satisfying in Twilight Imperium, in part because I think the game's rules support it in a, in a very clever way. It's none of this uh,
2: diplomacy nonsense where Mike and I go off in a room and talk to each other and make an agreement or or right. settlers so at like a time where I'm trying to sheep shop a piece of wood for sheep or like it's right. all very codified. Right.
0: It is. It is. And 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 there is there is still room for two people like i mean this would be a really annoying example but if you were playing against um you know a couple like a a husband and wife team and they're like well we're just not gonna attack each other (laughs) and we're just gonna be really nice to each other the whole game okay that would be really fucking annoying right (laughs) and and, um, there's no way you can get around that but the there are these special cards that you can exchange for very specific favors, and the cards are really clever and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, all of this is also, you know, entering into the next phase of the game, which is very much a cold war. I would argue that the game is more cold war than hot war, and mm-hmm. I really like that. It's um, it's a game about maneuvering your fleets and threatening people. And when you're in a position to threaten someone, uh, to extract as much as you can out of them. Like this is, this is absolutely a game where. Um, somebody can plant a huge fleet next to a bunch of planets that you find really, really valuable, and they can say to you, like, look, I could attack you, and I could totally wreck you, but um, I don't really want to because it's going to weaken my fleet, and that weakens me compared to everybody else, so let's let's make a deal. And both people are highly motivated to make a deal in that situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really cool. Um, the, the hot wars, the, the actual fighting is also really satisfying i think it's it's complex it's got a lot of phases to it but i think the complexity is intriguing i think it's um you know one of the the throwbacks of the design is that it is a lot of dice that you're rolling and all the dice are these d10s, right and a ship's gonna basically hit if it if it rolls a certain number or higher so the better ships have lower numbers right so um uh, a fighter, which is a very weak ship, only hits on a 9 or a 10, but a dreadnought might hit on a 6 or higher. And I think that's a pretty intuitive system because it easily lets you calculate percentages, which right. I, I think makes it very easy to to look at a, a battle and say, okay, I think I have an advantage here, right? Um, and another part of the battles that we found intriguing is that there's a nice balance between the space warfare and the the planetary conquest. The the ground forces. So I'll just use an example. One of the guys in our game, Dave, was playing the Barony of Letnev, which is basically, I mean they all have absurd names, so we'll just get that out of the way. But the, (laughs) the the Barony is a very aggressive race and he started with a very strong initial fleet. And he Dave's also a very aggressive player, so he immediately started shoving that fleet in our face and taking over our, our territory and, and threatening us. Um, but there came a point mid-game where he realized, we all realized, that he had this insanely powerful fleet with no ground forces. So he could sort of go into um, you know, a hex and destroy uh, somebody's fleet, but he wouldn't be able to actually land on the planets and take them over. So that was, it was, it was funny and it was interesting and it was very thematic. It's like, right. here's this, this asshole alien that's going around, <laughs> but doesn't, doesn't, didn't know to bring enough infantry to actually take over the planet. Right. Have
2: fun flying around in space where you can't get anything. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, the, and the, the last thing I'll say about the, the positive positive in, in terms of um, the narrative arc, it's, I, I, I found it a very immersive game and I think the immersiveness largely does come from the diversity of the factions. I think Mm -hmm. that each of the factions allows for a different play style and gives you some some cool strategic hooks. They all start with special powers and certain unique uh, technologies and unique ships that they might start with that encourage you to play a certain way but don't force you. I think it still allows for a very sandbox-style game. Like, if you want to play the x-cha which is they're literally space turtles and so you would expect them to to be a turtling type race but if you want to play them super aggressive you can um it's going to be a little bit harder and you're not going to be playing to your strengths necessarily but you could totally do that so i i see it as kind of a merit trash done right in the sense that it's 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 racial asymmetry it's starting player asymmetry that is 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 quite diverse but doesn't uh hole you into playing a particular way
2: am I correct that there are seventeen factions in the game
0: yeah there are there are a lot and they, and they did shove them all into this fourth edition which is really cool aren't aren't a bunch of those like useless or, or are they rated like are they rated oh, by sure. like some
2: newbie friendly or
0: <laughs> There's, I mean, there. As you might guess, for a game like this and that has this much history, there's an insane amount of conversation and discussion online about which are the tier one races and which are tier two and okay. da 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 da. Right. But for a bunch of newbies like us, we we didn't know what the hell we were doing. So did we, you guys we, draw we, randomly, or how did you decide? No, we we picked ones that looked like they sat well with us. Like I picked the X job because I do kind of like to turtle in my games, and so I was like, yeah, that that sits well with me. And Dave, you know, did pick the assholes, because, yeah, that's the kind of player who likes to be. So, uh, so,
1: Hassan, does this still use a, and third, it had this mechanic where each turn would start with you drafting a card that was your primary action? Oh, I love that then, Puerto Rico thing, yeah. That's yeah. correct. And, that, and then everyone else got to use like this the lesser version of the action, if I remember correctly?
0: That's correct, yeah, the okay. strategy cards. Yep. Yep. And and there I would say, again, I'm sort of speaking to to me from a year ago, like one impression I had of Twilight Imperium is that it was very much an I go you wait type of game right like where oh my god my turns are going to take forever and you guys are all just going to be looking at your phone but it's not like that at <laughs> all it's it's really super engaging and the strategy cards are one reason for that like Tom just referenced the the, the Puerto Rico element like you're 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 playing your strategy card and you're getting the primary action but everybody else at the table then has a choice of whether they want to use the secondary but they do have to spend a very valuable resource to to do that. So it's a really cool decision to make um and you're not sure what the order of the strategy cards coming out is going to be so uh it's i would say that it is a mentally taxing and exhausting game where Uh, the decisions are constant and the part of the reason why they're exhausting is because they have vast implications like if you make a mistake or two in this game you're really screwed Mm -hmm. and 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 that that does lead to the concern we expressed earlier which is if you if you do make a couple mistakes and you do get slammed oh man i you know yeah you're in you're in for a world of hurt at that point
2: one of the, the the debates around third edition that I remember is there was a card that you would take, and I forget if it meant you go first or last, but it would give you one of the ten objective points you needed to win mm-hmm. uh, so that naturally the people who skipped that card and they wanted something that let them – do uh, an action in accordance with whatever strategy they were chasing they're like okay i don't need that objective point like they would feel that if you ever could take the objective point card you have to take it and it has to do a round robin around the table in order to keep everyone in order to keep someone from pulling ahead by just picking that card uh yeah is and that I, card I still I being, there
1: yep. i remember it being something like if you picked it you were the last person to go but then you were the first pick the next round or something like that too but it's been many years since I've it. Yeah, and that. you
2: could never take it
0: twice in a row. Is
2: right. It? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, uh, yeah, again, I don't know how it worked in third. But there, there is a card like that now. It's called the Imperial card. And you only get a point if you control Mechatol Rex, which is at the center of the galaxy. So uh-huh. so what? one thing that happened in in our game is that I... I did make a bead for Mechatol Rex. I felt like I had a good opportunity to get there quickly. And Turtle. That's what you and, do, yeah. And, and Turtle, exactly. <laughs> like, set up camp there, build a space base, and just start cranking out at least some decent, um, you know, defense mechanisms. And I was actually able to sit on Mechatol Rex for several rounds. And um, since the table, we were still learning the game, I was able to to draft and take Imperial, I think, twice um, and get two points out of that and apparently that's that's pretty good if you can get two points out of sitting on mechatol rex that's that's you know 20 percent of your way to victory um, and you only
2: get is... those if you occupy mechatol
0: rex correct so yeah that's a is... huge change from
2: the last yeah. game it sounds like yeah
0: yeah and it puts heavy emphasis on mechatol rex it makes it a planet that is worth controlling but also uh, it is a huge target and so it tends to exchange ownership throughout the course of the game right right
1: so have you played eclipse before i'm just curious how this compares if you have
0: because and also
2: in 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 relation to eclipse Hassan, i'd be curious what you think like it it seems like eclipse offers the same basic experience in half the time right couldn't this game have offered the same experience in half the time like eclipse
0: (laughs) (laughs) um i have played eclipse eclipse and um, I'll, I'll be honest. I like Eclipse, but I don't love it. I think it leaves me a little cold, in part because it just feels a little too um, thematically sort of, uh, you know, s- strained. It's it's it just feels much more Euroy than than Twilight Imperium. I think what I love about Twilight is how Ameritrash it is, mm-hmm. and and I love the variability in the races and how that variability can be kind of extreme um, and the the tech tree system is interesting in both games. I mean I think one of the parts about Eclipse that I quite like is is the choice of which techs you're going to choose mm-hmm. and you know how you're going to follow that particular path. I think the exploration element in Eclipse is done really really well. I mean I think they're both great games. They're going to appeal to different different people and certainly Eclipse has the advantage in terms of yeah, a group being able to get it to the table many, many more times in a year than than Twilight Imperium.
1: Yeah, and there's a new edition of that coming out this year, too, uh, that I kick-started. Oh. Uh, Eclipse. yep.
2: Hopefully with the expansion included? Like, they're bun- a bundle of all their stuff in a new edition?
1: Uh, it's their, I saw some at Gen Con. They, had, they have some new miniatures for it and revised rules. It looks, uh, looks pretty promising. Good, yeah. And have either of you guys played Star Trek Ascendancy?
2: What? What is that? I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> okay. not. Wait, is it's that the another... dice one?
1: No, 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 it's another 4x game where you're. Exploring. Oh no,
2: where you buy the races separately. Yep, and I've actually place. heard so. So Mike, Star Trek, it just makes my eyes glaze over. Like I couldn't okay. care less about Star Trek stuff. But being told about that game, I was super curious about that. Uh, do you yeah, know I... it? Because because of the asymmetry of it.
1: Yep, I I own it. Uh, I really like it. I only have, <laughs> I don't have the expansions, so the uh, main set comes with three races. And you have to play it three players. It doesn't work with any less.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and then as you add more races, you can have four or five players. Uh, but I, I liked it a lot, so I'm looking forward to playing it again, uh, maybe pick up some of the expansions. I was just curious if you guys had seen it.
2: I bet it takes a third as long as Twilight Imperium. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's,
1: it's still a three- to four-hour game, but it's not ten.
2: <laughs> and it's a 4X, not just fleet battles, right? Like it's Correct. A, yep. yeah, you're, yeah, ex, yeah.
1: you're exploring, and the, the way they do the map instead of hexes is uh, they are these planets – and then when you decide to go to light speed, you roll this die. And you have these little connector pieces, almost like the uh, the streets in Arkham. Yep. You know, like yep. the, the kind of uh, but they're variable length. So if you roll three, it's gonna be three uh, jumps, or you know, or the jump speed is to the next system, and then you out gra- draw a random planet. Uh, and the cool thing about that is you can win either through military or through just cultural, and each different race has a different way of doing it. So like for the Federation, that's a lot easier for them to win is a cultural victory. Uh, as opposed to the Klingons who want to just destroy everything.
2: I I love those kind of space 4x kind of games, but it I, they, they're just like so many of them. Like I guess to do a 4x game properly, it has to be something long. You have to have each of the x's, and there has mm-hmm. to be that early exploration, and there has to be the sort of the late game border clashes. Uh, I I just wish there was some way to condense them that didn't have to streamline it and make it Euro-y, vaguely themeless like Eclipse. Yeah, Uh, yeah. It's sort of like 4X uh, has to necessarily be
1: Ameritrash, I I think. Yeah. yeah, And and I always loved Twilight Imperium Third, so I still may pick this up. We're actually going to have a a board game weekend at the end of April, so it's on my radar as something we might play.
0: I what it makes me think of is this you know as board game designers often will take inspiration from video games right and it's this idea of hey can we recreate this digital this really cool digital experience in a board game form? and on the one hand i totally get that and I, as a video game avid video gamer myself I, I do that as a designer i try to take inspiration from where i can get it but there are times when i think that we're, we're chasing down the wrong holes you know um like the, a 4X experience is is really much, I think, probably much better instantiated in a computer game than it is in a board game. And I kind of feel that way about, for example, like a, a Diablo-like experience. Like every now and then I'll see people try to come out with a board game version of a hack and slash mm-hmm. And it just ends up being a game that is full of tokens and little tiny cards <laughs> and just a bunch of crap. And I'm just, I, 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 can't, I look at that, and I'm just like, why aren't you just playing Diablo instead, right? And I, I do think there are there are times when board gamers, uh, designers should, uh, were fooled into thinking that that these are valid paths to take when really we should be trying to play to the strengths of what a board game can do better than a digital game. Right. Right. Um, and and I I don't know it's it's, it's tough because obviously 4X is going to appeal to so many people you have such a great audience there already.
2: Right? Part I mean I, part of it too Hassan, is I think of a 4X game as almost always a, a solitaire thing like I take my time I'm building my civilization I run into some like dumb AI guys and I maybe trick them with diplomacy or or fight them but when I sit down and play a 4X it's like a ten hour experience that I'm doing on my own at my leisure uh at whatever pace i want um so by forcing other people to like i've never played civilization multiplayer i mean not in earnest uh i've sort of tried it but it just seems like 4x's are an inherently solitaire thing for how long they take and for the fact that you want to end up gobbling up the whole map and if you're not going to you just quit and restart right Um, right so yeah all right well uh, Mike, you're going to have to take the bullet because he didn't sell me on Twilight
1: Imperium. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can uh, get it a little cheaper than you can.
2: That is true. Very good point. Right, right. All right. Well, thank you guys for uh, listening. We're going to be back in two weeks, and I think one of the things we'll talk about is uh, logistics issues with things like uh, storing games and miniatures and uh, some of that. So join us for that next week or in two weeks, and we'll also talk about what we've been playing since then. I am Tom Chick. I've been here with Hassan Lopez and Mike Pullman. Thanks, and see you. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Bye. Cheers.